Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1232 of the Lofton Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Roland, coming to you on a Tuesday here in early May. Thank you for joining us as always on the podcast. Make us your first listen each and every day. Check us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube, among other platforms. And I'll be joined today for something of a two-part episode. First part dropping on this Tuesday with my friend Ben Ladner, who used to be on the full-time Hawks beat, now writes about the NBA at Fanside. Does a great job over there. Ben is very, very smart. Also the co-host of the Read and React podcast. All over the place is he on the NBA and Ben's been on this podcast many times before. And today's episode focuses on the actually on the NBA playoffs. Um, I know the Hawks are out of it. I'm not going to do a ton of NBA playoff coverage, but every once in a while, I like to dip my toe into the waters of talking about the basketball world beyond the Hawks. And that'll be part one today. And then part two later on in the week will be myself and Ben talking about the Hawks, how things ended, what's going to be coming up in the future for the Hawks, adjustments that need to be made to the roster, his observations on the playoff series against the Miami Heat, and much more. So that's coming up, but certainly on the podcast you're about to listen to right now, it is part one. It is Ben and I on the four active playoff series. A lot of fun to be had. And that's all coming up after you hear from the intro. We'll be right back, myself and Ben Ladner. You are locked on Hawks. Your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I am joined now by friend of the podcast, longtime associate, NBA connoisseur, Ben Ladner. Hello, sir. How are you? It's a generous introduction as always. Thank you <laughs> again, as always, for having me on. I, I always enjoy doing this. It's my pleasure. We're recording this on Tuesday. Uh, I sort of teased before I brought you in. This will be a, sort of a two-part episode. And we're talking about the playoffs a little bit right now with the four interesting series. There are still remaining eight teams remaining. We'll be quick a little bit on these first two because there are two games tonight as we record this. So I'm not going to spend too much time, but hopefully this, this analysis holds up on these two series. Um, I guess before we do that, though, uh, anything like sticking out to you in terms of like overall takeaways? Because the thing I keep, that I keep, sorry, I keep coming back to um, is that there isn't like a giant favorite, which is nice for people like us. I feel like I, I, I enjoy analyzing all the weirdness and they're not being a dominant favorite in the playoffs is uh, not necessarily super out of the ordinary, but also kind of refreshing because I don't know who I'd be even picking to win things, which we'll come back to at the end. But it's kind of uh, kind of nice. Yeah, I, I'm struggling to discern a real favorite as well. I mean, I think after the first round, I would have said Golden State was probably the favorite and then Boston in the East. But it's always hard with those first round matchups to tell like how much of that is the team that looked good being good versus the team that looked bad just not being that good. You know, so you really kind of need more evidence into the second and third rounds to know, okay, this team is actually good or maybe they just had a, a good matchup in the first round. And they're not as good as we thought. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would still say that like Golden State's the favorite in the West. Boston's the favorite in the, but you know, Boston's down 0-1 to a Milwaukee team that doesn't have Chris Middleton. So maybe it's a little more wide open the, in the East. But whoever it is, I, I don't think I don't think anyone has more than like um, like a five percent greater chance than the next team in each respective conference as a, to win the championship. You know, um, and then as far as like overall takeaways. I guess we're kind of seeing like I don't know that there are any like significant like a few years ago it was like okay small ball is like taking over the league and you have yeah. to be able to play small we're seeing a little bit of that defensive versatility like all the stuff that's emerged in the last few years as important things to be able to do in the playoffs still there I think I guess the two things would kind of be like 
scheme versatility on both ends. That's really important to have to be able to do different things defensively, play different lineups that can do different things offensively. And then kind of going off of that, just teams that can play defense, you know, like the, the, we saw the Hawks, for example, in round one, <laughs> just like yeah. a team that could, and they couldn't score in that series either. But like these teams that can't get stops down the stretch, this has always been true to an extent, I suppose. But I, I think it's possible, and, and we'll probably need a year or two or three more to really know this for sure. But it's possible that as the pace and space, you know, proliferates around the league, offenses become more lethal, harder to stop the teams that actually can stop really good offenses become even more valuable because there are maybe fewer of those teams than there have been in years past. So I don't know. That's just sort of a half-baked hypothesis. We'll see <laughs> if that really holds up at all. Maybe like some team that can't play defense at all will end up winning the championship, but there aren't really many of those teams left. So no. maybe that is evidence that that hypothesis might be true. Yeah, not a coincidence there, I don't think. I think that your, your point about ski versatility uh, certainly rings true, particularly um, as well. I'm trying to hold off on the Hawks talk until later, but that, that came up in that series. Miami being scheme versatile and the Hawks being less so uh, certainly mattered in that series. Um, I do want to at least quickly touch on these series that are going to be playing tonight. Um, and they both had these interesting dynamics in play. Obviously, the Celtics and Bucks. Um, Milwaukee's now a small betting favorite in the series because they won game one. Uh, I thought that was pretty interesting, according to our friends at Bet Online. Um, Boston just couldn't score in game one, and it was kind of in a weird way. Not that it was too shocking because Milwaukee's defensively, they're, they're always quite good, but without Middleton, uh, that was notable. And like Boston, I don't know if you noticed this too, it came also in the numbers, but like Boston just had all these opportunities in transition and they just didn't score on any of them. It was like the most bizarre thing in the world where they, they just could not execute when they had chances. And um, obviously Middleton's absence looms over everything, but the fact that Giannis didn't even play that well by his standards, I want to say by his standards, he's obviously incredible. Yeah. He made a lot of plays, but like he didn't even like have a monster game efficiency wise. And they still were able to win on the road is a little bit concerning for Boston, I guess. Yeah, that was a weird game. And Very. frankly, I mean, not um, a particularly pleasant game. I think once you sort of accepted like this is going to be really ugly and physical and gross, it actually was kind of fun to watch. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, if you could, sort of could have. I appreciated it more than most would, I think. Yeah, yeah. If you could sort of accept it on its own terms for what it was, I think it was a fun game. But um, for people who are fans of like beautiful basketball it was maybe not the most enjoyable but the team the team that won the game by double digits scored exactly one point per possession in the yeah game. so <laughs> yeah. you know not great yeah um it's just a, a real slugfest like you mentioned the boston transition thing i agree they were just like i mean both teams really especially early on just like kicking the ball over the gym i mean it looked like the 1940s or something where just like <laughs> no one could dribble or like do anything with the ball lots of turnovers, lots of sloppiness, Boston in particular. I mean, they just blew a lot of chances in transition. I thought that was where like that might've been where the game was, was decided was in transition. Cause I thought on the other end, Milwaukee was pretty good about getting out in the open floor, particularly with Giannis handling the ball and letting him just having him attack downhill in transition or semi transition before the defense could get set. Obviously, he's going to attract two or three defenders every time he goes to the rim because he's Giannis. And then he's just kicking out to open shooters. Wes Matthews, Grayson Allen both got a couple open shots. Um, Drew Holiday was able to push the pace and get out in transition. So Milwaukee creating transition threes was a big theme in that series, and they hit just enough of them to kind of turn things their way. Um, but I, I think that also kind of underscores another important theme in this series, which is that Giannis is not Kevin Durant. 
he's a, a completely different beast than that, you know, and, and like the Celtics were trying a lot of the physical, you know, off ball bumping kind of stuff they did with Durant trying to push him farther out on the floor, deny him his spots. And Giannis was like, okay, if you want to be physical, let's play physical. And you're going to end up on the ground. Like there was a play when he literally threw Jason Tatum to the ground, not even in an aggressive way, just his, the, the sheer difference in strength. Tatum was like trying to wrestle with Giannis and Giannis just sort of like extended his forearm just a little bit. And Tatum literally fell down to the ground. He goes in for an and one. Yeah. It's just a completely different kind of monster that, that Boston's dealing with here. I still think they're, reasonably well equipped to scheme for Giannis but I thought in game one he looked really really comfortable in a way that I wasn't even expecting and I, I expected him to have a better series than Durant did against the Celtics but even then I, I was surprised at how easily he was getting to the rim how comfortable he looked just getting into the gaps of the defense and facilitating and scoring I mean, he really didn't look all that bothered by what I thought was a really good Celtics defense in round one and, and so that maybe is going to be the thing that swings the series. Horford, Al Horford did a pretty good job individually against Giannis, but that's never going to be enough. And I thought the rest of the, the team, they either didn't execute the scheme or they just didn't have the scheme to really slow Giannis down. And he had an inefficient game, but a lot of that was just missed layups around the rim, you know, stuff that he usually will convert. And it was just kind of that, the nature of the game um, that he wasn't able to finish those. So if Boston can't figure out a way to at least slow Giannis down, this might end up being like bucks and five or bucks and six, but I do expect that they'll start to figure things out and, and do a little bit better job on him. Yeah. It sounds a big one for Boston on Tuesday as we're talking tonight. Cause if, if you go down Oh two at home, like you're not dead, but you're, uh, you're drawing close to dead at that point against a good team. And uh, just to put a put on it, Giannis was nine of 25 from the floor in game one. That is not going to happen again, you would imagine. He's too good, uh, especially around the rim. And you mentioned like the, the shot quality. Like he didn't seem to be too bothered. It was just kind of just him, him missing. And that is uh, that's an alarm bell if you're the opposition because he's not going to do that very much. Uh, usually, even on a bad night, quote unquote, for him, he's going to make, you know, 11 of 25, 12 of 25. And, uh, you know, same same shot quality. He might shoot 16 of 25 in the next game and then you're uh, yeah. in some deep trouble. So um, anything that you think, um, Boston should be doing differently, or is it just like, hopefully they can hold up and execute better because obviously they're gonna have to score at a higher level. That's very, very clear, but like, this is just, it's just guys making shots or is it anything that you're looking at before we move on to the next series? Like what, what can Boston actually do differently on offense? Yeah, I think they could, if they can find a way to get Milwaukee's rim protectors a little bit higher on the floor, that would help a lot. Giannis and Brooke Lopez were really good around the rim defensively in game one. And I don't know if that's just putting Tatum in more pick and roll, running Tatum off of off ball stuff, um, playing just Horford or Williams, Robert Williams, that is, instead of both of them a little bit more often. I don't know, but just finding ways to get more space on the floor, bring those rim protectors away from the rim because Boston just couldn't do anything at the rim. I think they were like 10 of 22 yep. on layups in this game. And, uh, you know, that's I mean, that's expected against Milwaukee because they're just a really good rim protecting team. That's what they do. But. Yeah, I mean, I, I just—it's <laughs> yeah, I, it's one of those things where, like, uh, I don't necessarily know what Ime Udoka should do schematically, but my guess is that Ime Udoka will have a better idea than I do, and he'll figure something out. Um, you would hope, otherwise, yeah, they're, so, otherwise they're in some trouble because the offense was not a uh, not functioning at the highest level. Yeah, yeah, and and a lot of that is just missing shots, yeah. like you said. They just didn't need to make shots, but I think they could they could probably get better shots against Milwaukee. Probably maybe not, but I, I think they could at least like find a way that not every shot that Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum take are 
you know, under heavy duress, like they could maybe do a better job of that, but we'll say, and then transition too. I mean, that's, Oh yeah, certainly. Like, like you said, not like fumbling the ball off your foot every time you dribble down the when floor. you have, when you actually get stops or get turnovers, uh, not, not languishing those opportunities because yeah, they don't come that often against Milwaukee. And the other thing, the other thing that I will add is like without Middleton available for Milwaukee, they got to punish guys like Grayson Allen. Like you can't mm-hmm. let Grayson Allen just be out there and be a shooter. Like you have to give Milwaukee some sort of price to pay for playing Grayson Allen. Uh, that means Jalen Brown being alive. He was not good in game one. Um, that's part of that. Cause they have to put him, they, they got to put Grayson Allen on somebody and whoever that guy is, has got to make him pay a little bit because otherwise uh, he's a good shooter. Like, and he, he'll kill you on offense if you let him play on defense. So just one observation there. Okay, Ben. Let us move on to Warriors Grizzlies, but first, a word from our sponsors on the podcast today. Today's show is brought to you by Prize Picks. If you're in search of a daily fantasy option this year in the NBA, you can check out the award winning app at Prize Picks. Prize Picks Daily Fantasy made easy. I love it. I know that you will too. It's so easy to use. All you have to do is pick two to five players and their projections give you an over under. Just take one of those sides and one of the 10 times on any entry, just you can the projected numbers. It's just that easy. An entire entry can be made just, just a minute or less, so it's also, also very quick and efficient. And Prospects is safe. It offers fast withdrawals, and they have props on anything you can possibly think of, including points, rebounds, assists, and even steals in the basketball world. They also have mixed sports entries. So if you like MMA or soccer or baseball, etc., you can pair stuff together, use those skills at the same time, and really kind of have a lot of fun going sport to sport. And for a limited time, Prospects has an exclusive offer for all of our users, and it's an absolute no-brainer at this point in time. $50 for free. If a player in your first prize per century scores even a single point, and all you have to do is use the promo code NBA. One more time, that is promo code NBA for exclusive offer for only our users. It's an actual no-brainer. If you use that code, you get $3 for free. If a player in your first entry scores even a single point, check it all out today at Prize Picks. All right, Ben, let us discuss Warriors Grizzlies. The Warriors are big favorites at Bet Online now, minus 525 as we speak in the series after winning game one on the road. Uh, and kind of without Draymond, I know Draymond played in that game, but uh, he p- did not play for a long stretch of that game, and they were able to win anyway on the road. And you said it earlier, the Warriors um, are, if not the favorites, they are close to the favorites. They are playing extremely well. They have their guys uh, all firing on all cylinders now that Draymond, as long as Draymond doesn't get suspended again, which might happen, I guess, later on in the playoffs. But um, weirdly, the Warriors kind of thumped them on the glass offense, which was a little bit strange. And that's what the Grizzlies just kind of had that happen because Memphis has got to win the glass in this series. But like anything stick out to you, obviously the Warriors are just the more established team offensively. They can reach heights that are pretty scary. But um, what did you see in game one? Yeah, it was one of those games. I actually thought the Grizz outplayed the Warriors, which is either encouraging because or not, <laughs> they, or, or not because that yeah. was the game to get and they gave it away at home. And now home court advantage is back to Golden State. So, I mean, you mentioned the rebounding. That was obviously a big key. The Grizz were the best offensive rebounding team in the league this year, and they were pretty good on the offensive glass, but defensively, yeah, just not able to secure. And a lot of that is because, you know, like when when the Warriors go small, it's sort of a poor, it forces their opponent to go small as well. And then when the center is setting a screen for Steph Curry, that means now the Grizzlies' small center, in this case, it was Jaron Jackson Jr. most of the time, has to come up high out on the floor. And if a shot goes up, now all of a sudden, your biggest guy, your best rim protector, ostensibly your best rebounder, is away from the basket. And so there's just all this open open space underneath the rim and no one big on defense to claim the rebound. And so guys like Andrew Wiggins, Gary Payton II were able to kind of get in there and, and tap it out or grab it and create some second shot opportunities. I also thought Steph Curry just did not look bothered by the Grizzlies defense. And... 
there are some things I guess they could do. I mean, keep him off his left hand a little bit more, make him go right. I mean, he missed some pretty makeable shots for him, which, you know, the Grizzlies dodged a bullet there. Um, but other than like just trying to force him away from his left hand or crowding his space a little bit more, putting two on the ball or something like, I don't know that the Grizzlies can really do anything against Steph or, or really the Warriors backcourt. Cause like Jordan Poole has now become this dynamic scorer and playmaker. Clay Thompson is looking more like Clay Thompson than ever before. And the Grizzlies just don't have amazing backcourt defensive personnel. John Moran is one of the worst defenders in the NBA. Desmond Bain is potentially injured. I know he's out. He's questionable with like back yeah. soreness or something for game two. I and didn't, didn't play really... in crunch time either. Like they, they had him on the bench. It was like, that's kind of weird. I don't know why he's yeah. not playing. And yeah, he might, he might not be hundred percent if nothing else. And sure. didn't look himself in game one when he did play either. Dylan Brooks is, is solid, but he fouls too much. And like <laughs> eventually yes. there's just too many guys on the Warriors that you have to account for. And I don't know that the Grizzlies can, unless they just want to play D'Anthony Melton a ton of minutes, which they did in game one. But you know, finding room for all four of those guards while keeping John Morant on the floor. I mean, if they really want to stop the Warriors, they would just take John Morant off the floor, but <laughs> then their offense is going to be bad. And so you yeah. have to keep them out there. So um, it, it's, it's tough. I mean, it, it feels like one of those things where if they adjust and start to load up on Steph, all of a sudden Poole's going to have another big game or Clay Thompson's going to get going or, you know, someone is going to be able to take advantage of that. That's sort of the benefit of having Steph Curry is that taking him away requires giving something else up somewhere elsewhere on the floor in a way that a lot of superstars don't. Um, so I, I, I guess I don't really know. I forgot what the question was to begin with, but <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> nothing matters. Ben. That's what uh, struck me about game one. Yeah. That was basically the question. No, it's like, it, it did feel like you kind of referenced it earlier in, in that answer. Like it, it seemed like Memphis, that was one they had to get and they didn't get it. Um, and this is, that's probably a little bit too simplistic, obviously, but Steph wasn't, uh, incredible by Steph standards in game one clay was six of 19 those two guys combined were not terribly efficient obviously Jordan Poole made up for a lot of that by being awesome off the bench but but between all of that and Draymond getting ejected and also turning the ball over a lot like they had a lot of things go their way did Memphis playing at home and still didn't win the game uh, obviously there is the caveat of the missed traveling violation that let us win the game in the final minute that was tough uh, which the NBA, of course, everyone always loves the last two minute report that does nothing after the game. Everyone always enjoys that. Uh, it's not going to change anything whatsoever. But um, yeah, if you're if you're a Grizz fan, obviously you're st- you're not giving up hope by any means. But it's like a lot went right for you and you didn't win anyway. So and obviously same thing as Boston, but even more so in this series. Like you have to win game two. You you cannot mm-hmm. afford to lose game two at home because then you got to win four out of five without any home court whatsoever. And that is a uh, I won't, I won't say impossible because I never want to close the door on anything. I was the same guy who said the Hawks the Hawks were still alive when they were down three three one and all that stuff. But like nothing is uh, going to be good for you if you're down two, if you're down two at home. So who knows? Yeah, and maybe going off the sort of backcourt defense point for the Grizz, maybe one way to do that is to try to make the Warriors guards work a little bit more on defense. Like that that is of course going to require Bain to play better, be healthier, Dylan Brooks to actually make a shot. Um, he hardly but, ever does that, to be which, honest. yeah, um, I don't even get me started on Dylan I Brooks. I love it. Um, but offensively, that is offensively. Um, but, but you know, like if, if they can make Steph guard a little bit more, if they make Jordan Poole guard, make Clay guard, tire those guys out, just have some sort of secondary offensive threat outside of John ja Morant on the perimeter 
who can actually like do some damage against those Warriors guards defensively. Maybe that helps you on the other end because they don't have as much energy to go back at you. Um, I don't know. The, the other thing that stood out to me was the Warriors who are, are not like a big getting to the rim type of offense. No. They were 25 out of 36 at the rim in this game. They just were getting there. And, that, and that's really what swung the game. Like the three-point shooting, the Grizz were a little better from three, but the Warriors were kind of even with them. Every other spot on the floor, the offensive rebounding, the turnovers, I think were all pretty similar. And it was just the the Warriors getting to the rim and finishing pretty much with ease that kind of turned the game in their favor. And again, that's maybe a product of, of Steph pulling those rim protectors away from the basket. Now there's more space. They got a lot of stuff out of the short roll and like, you know, when Gri the Grizzlies put two on the ball, Gary Payton, the seconds getting downhill and Draymond and whoever else. So uh, that's that's something that I would maybe maybe you try playing bigger if you're Taylor Jenkins to keep another rim protector on the floor. But that has its downsides because he could get spaced out. He could get put into isolation and, and blown by and everything. So I don't know. There really aren't a lot of good answers against this <laughs> Warriors team. That's kind of what makes them the Warriors, you know, with those small lineups. And, uh, but of course the other thing there is they didn't have their small ball center in Draymond. And like, again, it kind of makes it one of those things where this was the game for the Grizzlies. They had to get the, that the, game. Yeah. The circumstances I mean, were set up perfectly and they just, it didn't happen. It. Yeah. It didn't happen at the end. I mean, Draymond, even before he left was not playing his best. He had five turnovers in 17 minutes. Like he wasn't, he didn't, it wasn't like he was cooking either. Um, I thought Gary Payton, who you referenced briefly was awesome in game one. And uh, that's a huge thing. Cause you could throw him at John. Um, simply, simply put though, like, I thought Bain was incredible in the Wolf series. Like, he changed that series. He was maybe the best player in that series. Like, that's, that's yep. how good he was. Uh, and if he's not that, if he's not good in this series, he's they have no chance in my mind. Because he he was not good. He might be injured, like you said. Um, but if he's that guy from game one, they're they're in some trouble, let's just say. And that's too much to put on him. I'm not saying it's all on him. But it's it's just kind of the reality. Like, their, their ceiling, you know, Jaw ja was good in game one. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing. Like, you can't really expect Jaw to do too much more than that. I am glad you referenced just how bad Jaw is defensively. I've tried not to pile on too much on that, but I've always found it funny that Jaw doesn't get the heat defensively that he should get. I think it's because he's super athletic. Is my yeah. guess as to why, but he is truly awful. Uh, he's truly, I mean, uh, I, I think in the last two series we've watched, uh, I guess the last couple of weeks, uh, both John Morant and Donovan Mitchell um, are getting some more attention that they probably should have gotten a long time ago for being terrible defensively. Donovan, finally, it was like, okay, this is unavoidable. We have to talk about how bad this is. Jaws getting, a, I think they're going to uh, probably get more of that in this series if, they, if, they, if it goes the wrong way. But uh, it's a problem. I mean, there's nothing you can really do about it. They got to have him on the floor. He's awesome on offense, but uh, a long way to go there. At least, he has, at least he has the tools. He can improve, you would think. Yeah, well, that's the thing. That's, that's what makes it frustrating is like, yeah, yeah you could – be doing this it's just your effort and your attention it's not like trey where like trey just like has no tools on top of everything else uh, right and obviously trey could be better too but uh the gap in, in tools defensively between john moran and trey young is uh is quite large so you would yeah. think that job be better and that's probably why again people don't understand how bad Jai is but he is really bad <laughs> if yeah. you watch it um, well and I, I think that's another important distinction between these two teams and, and i i i feel like Usually this is kind of cliche to say, but the Warriors are the more experienced team. They know what they're doing. They they just sort of have that, like they are playoff tested, you know, which is like the, the classic phrase that every pundit uses. But like they but they true. are, you know, I mean, they know what it takes to execute on offense. They're they're more connected defensively. Um, Steph Curry is miles better defensively, not just than John Morant, but a pretty much any high usage offensive guard in the NBA. He's probably the best defender of that you know, upper echelon offensive guard cohort. 
He puts forth the effort. Jordan Poole's a problem there. But I mean, for the most part, the Warriors just have solid players or better at every position who are willing to buy into the defense, who are you know what to do offensively, who put forth the effort, who maintain their focus. And I thought in game one, we saw a lot of instances where the Warriors would be really connected defensively. They're sort of on a string that had some lapses, but like then you'd go down the other end of the floor and the, the Grizzlies just couldn't guard more than like two or three actions in a row. And then something would eventually break down and Clay Thompson is slipping to the basket for a layup, you know, or the, the Warriors just don't stop moving. And it feels like the Grizzlies weren't ready for the, the level of execution defensively that it's going to take to slow down the Warriors. And very few teams are the Nuggets certainly weren't early in that series, but that's, I think that's where you see like the, you know, the playoff tested thing come in is, is where like the Warriors just kind of know how to execute, know how to stay disciplined, um, know how to sort of stay the course in a way that younger teams like the Grizzlies kind of don't. Yeah, that's well said. I think Golden State's in good shape. Obviously things can change if Memphis comes out in game two and gets a win and uh, sort of gets back in the series, but if they don't uh, long sledding ahead. We'll say for Memphis. I will say real quickly too. I hope this series goes seven because these were my two favorite teams to watch in the regular season. Yeah, more more of this. I mean, even game one, there wasn't like it was the most well played game in a lot of ways, but it was certainly entertaining. Yeah, was awesome was, yeah, yeah. The so, more of this series, the better. Yeah, totally agree on on all of that. Okay, a couple a couple more series to get to. Uh, both of which are uh, pretty lopsided. The betting market, by the way, is uh, sort of a teaser to look ahead here. But first, a word from our sponsors on today's podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by Bet Online, and of course, it's now into the month of May, and baseball season is up, up and running at full steam. And of course, that means the NBA playoffs are also here with a jam-packed slate of games almost every night across the sporting landscape for the next couple of weeks and months. With that in mind, BetOnline.net is the number one source for all of your sports betting needs and information. This year, they have the latest odds, contests, player props, futures, exotics, and much more. And really, it's the best spot in the sports world for all the latest developments, including podcasts and reviews for all of the leagues this season. Not just basketball or baseball either. BetOnline is the continued source for all the sports wagering information that you need and all the needs that you could possibly could have anyway, really even beyond sports, including live betting and your favorite casino games. BetOnline also has odds on other sports. That includes golf and esports, tennis, auto racing, horse racing, hockey, MMA, boxing, soccer, cricket, entertainment bets, and much more. And it's always time. It's always fun, even for me, to look ahead of the futures market. That includes the NFL, college football. All those sports are not in season right now, but there's always something to bet on at betonline.net. Head to the website right now and your, on your computer mobile device to learn more about all the trends and the action across the sports world. And just visit BetOnline today. Bet online, where the game starts. Okay, Ben, let us discuss the two big favorites. Uh, Phoenix is minus 600 to win their series against Dallas. And then in a moment, we'll talk about Miami. Miami's minus 715 right now with Joel Embiid injured and up 1-0, et cetera. So uh, it will surprise everyone if you pick either the, either Dallas or Philadelphia to come back and win. I'll just say that right now. But uh, uh, as for uh, Dallas, Dallas-Phoenix, um, obviously they got a lot from Luka in game one, Dallas did, but just basically nothing from Brunson and Dinwiddie for most for the most part and uh, that was a sharp change from the Utah series in which Brunson was completely awesome and did we had some moments too like is it just as simple as them playing a different team and Phoenix being uh, uh let's just say a, a level or two above Utah overall but or is it just like kind of a bad matchup like what do you see from Dallas like kind of not not, not being unable to score but certainly it was a harder time and then of course Phoenix offense was uh on a string in game one yeah, it's it's definitely. I mean, I talked about how Giannis is sort of a different level than KD. It's kind of similar going from you. Maybe it's not as stark as going from Utah to Phoenix. I mean, Pro, yeah, present day Utah and current Phoenix are pretty uh, pretty far apart. I think. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, uh, even even Devin Booker, who I think 
you and I would both consider probably the weakest defender in Phoenix's starting five and not like a particularly great defender is miles better than Donovan Mitchell. Oh yeah. I mean, that was, uh, it was, it was very obvious to see. I mean, Booker's gotten a lot better. Uh, I will say he has become more of a passable defender in his, in the last couple of years, but yes, I totally agree. I mean, even, uh, not to pick on Mike Conley, but Mike Conley at mm. his current state is not great yeah. either at his age. So like the, the two of them playing together versus honestly, Chris Paul has gotten a lot worse defensively. That is worth saying out loud, but Chris Paul is physical. He, he'll compete. He'll be in the right spot at least. And uh, Utah was not the same thing. Yeah. Well, the Chris Paul thing, I think that's how Dallas can sort of get, get some more easy points is going at him, not with Luca, which they tried to go at him with Luca a little bit last night, but Luca is too slow and Chris Paul is strong enough yeah. to kind of handle that matchup. Like he forced him into some tough turnarounds and floaters. If, if you want to get Brunson and Dinwiddie going, try to just get them matched up against Chris Paul and let them Downhill. use their speed. Yep. You know, I think, I think that's probably the way to go. I, I was surprised actually. I, I usually don't check the, the box score or anything like during games or really even like the score bug. Um, while I'm watching a game, I was surprised to see Luca had 45 on 15 of 30 shooting <laughs> this morning when I checked it. Cause it really, it felt like Mikhail Bridges did a decent job on him. It felt like he's the son's help. Was really, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess that just sort of tells you how amazing yeah. Luca is, but I thought, especially in the third quarter, he was passing up a lot of layups where he would like get a step on his man. He'd get to the basket. He'd have an advantage often just one-on-one with his defender in between him and the rim, like, point blank and he'd try to kick out to the perimeter or something and the Mavs would end up taking a worse shot um, and I know the Mavs don't really want to get to the rim that's not really their game it's not the Suns game either but I, I thought Luca had a lot of chances to finish some layups that he just didn't take and then on the perimeter not only did Mikhail Bridges do a really nice job getting over screens staying attached all that when when guys like Aiton got switched on to Luca or Chris Paul or whoever Booker whoever it was the Suns did us so much of a better job than the Jazz did, like helping that guy when he got beat or, you know, rotating to the shooter when there was a kickout or just like doing the basic defensive concepts that are required to play like competent team defense that the Jazz just couldn't do. And so, again, it just kind of goes back to the difference in execution is is and personnel, of course is massive in this series. But I thought even like DeAndre Ayton did a nice job executing the the defensive game plan they're forcing Luca right they're sitting on that left hip and they want to make him drive they want to collapse they want to bring help kick out to a shooter or rotate etc they don't want to let him get to that step back but that said I thought Luca bailed the, the Suns out quite a few times and I know he was four yeah. of 11 from three on the game but a lot of the threes he was taking he took some bad ones for sure they're just, yeah it's just not yeah. good shots and and even if he goes it's sort of the the John Morant thing he I think he also went four of 11 in game one against the Warriors and it's like, okay, well, yeah, if he's going to make those shots, we'll let him take those shots. But that's what we want. Like the the Mavs and Warriors want Luca and Ja, respectively, to take 11 threes a game. That's I think that's kind of playing into their you have hands. To. You have to. That's the only way to guard those guys is you right. make them take some shots that are not optimal shots. I mean, it's crazy. And the numbers are a little bit weird in this game because Dallas scored like 22 points in the last like four minutes or something because mm-hmm. Phoenix just kind of stopped trying. Um, but before that, like, you know, it was both ends of the floor that were just kind of hideous for Dallas in this game. Offensively, it was pretty bad. Defensively, it was really bad the entire game, and that even happened throughout the game. But, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, as, what, as good as Luka was, you have to make him shoot jump shots and just hope they don't go in. But, every, I mean, the, the game plan for Dallas, for Phoenix against Dallas is basically you know, you kind of have to know Luka's going to get his. 
But if you look at the box score and even watch the game, like other than Maxi Kleber, who made his first four threes, five threes in the game in the first half. Yeah, I think he was like four or four and then five or six. Yeah. And other than that, there was like nothing going on for, the, for Dallas's offense. I mean, uh, we mentioned Brunson and then we were really, really quiet. You know, you're getting catch and shoots for Bullock and DFS or, wh- or whoever else. But like you'll, t- you'll, you'll take that if you're if you're Phoenix and they don't get to the rim like you mentioned. That's a good thing um, for the defense. And but the, I guess the counterpoint is like Dallas shot. 41% from three and turn them all over nine times and we're down by 20 with three minutes to go. Like this wasn't even a compl- if you, I, I, I know you got actually would have watched this game all the way through. If you didn't watch this game, you might think, Oh, it's competitive. It wasn't like, no. it, this is a 20 point game with three minutes to go. So like, there's not a lot to grasp onto if you're Dallas, especially on defense, which we haven't really talked about a lot, but like Phoenix's offense, obviously they shot the heck out of the ball in this game, which is not necessarily sustainable. But if you watch the way they attacked it, does Dallas need to switch more? I mean, I have no idea what they, what they can do. They've been really good defensively this year in kind of surprising ways, but uh, their traditional defense did not uh, did not work. Let's, let's just say. In game no, one. it did not. Yeah. Um, it's. I thought coming into this series, my, my sort of theory, I think I picked Dallas in seven or six, maybe. I, I picked an upset, whatever amount of games look, it was. Look at, look at you taking a stand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, being, being bold. I mean, I, I will say uh, if we knew... Um, if we thought Devin Booker was not going to be himself, it would have been a little bit easier. Yes, that see. was part of my thinking. And yeah. Devin Booker played 38 minutes in game one. So I, I assume he's at least close. I, he, didn't, he didn't play great, but him being out there for his full workload mm-hmm. uh, is not good for Dallas because uh, that's, that's, that's tough. Because that that's the one sort of major crack. I mean, you talked about the Warriors earlier on being your, your title pick like a week ago or whatever it was. Part of that was that. Devin Booker was hurt and we didn't know when he was going to come back. And I was on the same page as you. It's like, look, if Booker is at least hobbled for a while, maybe it's supposed to Golden State. But if Booker's himself, there's a reason why Phoenix was the best team in the league by a wide margin this year. And they yeah. were uh, that team in game one. Yeah. And part of the reason I picked Dallas coming in was I figured, well, they've got two really quick secondary ball handlers. They've got one just incredible, like unstoppable primary ball handler. And they're just going to be able to spread Phoenix out use their quickness or their ball handling or craft or whatever to penetrate the defense, kick out the shooters, swing the ball like they did against the Mavericks and it wouldn't work or against the jazz. And it wouldn't, wouldn't work as well as it did against the jazz, but they would at least be able to generate offense that way. And then defensively they fly around, they rotate, they're connected. They do all these things. Phoenix is not really like a, I mean, they, they run good stuff, but they're, they're not going to like, necessarily mismatch hunt all the time and they're more of like kind of a continuity offense so i figured okay dallas is fairly well equipped they've got some versatility they can do some switching they're fairly well equipped to to keep a handle on a continuity based offense and that wasn't really the case in game one and and i think one of the things that i thought was going to be an advantage for phoenix coming in that really was in game one was deandre ayton who like i think he was like 10 of 12 or something to start the, the game something Some, like that yeah. and then missed his last five shots or whatever but again the last few minutes were kind of weird Very. um he was just i mean he was just sealing not not just when the maps would switch it wasn't just like he's getting brunson on a switch and he's at the charge circle he'd just like seal maxi kleba get an entry pass from chris paul and go up and, and finish and he's got great touch he's got good range on the floater he can turn around he's a good mid-range shooter he can step out and shoot from the elbow i mean like he was kind of unstoppable for Dallas and he's well, not going to create a lot for himself, but his size is a real issue for the maps. Yeah. I was going to say 
I think one of the reasons why Dallas maybe didn't try to switch more was because of what Aiton was already doing against guys his size. Because yeah. like that's the that's the fear if you're Dallas. If you start switching, they just go to Aiton and punish you. Um, because I think objectively your best bet against in particular Chris Paul, but even Booker too, is to switch. But like if Aiton's gonna kill you, then that kind of neutralizes that a little bit. So it's uh yeah, you're picking a bunch of bad options. Phoenix is really good for a reason. I would still probably try to switch a little bit more and just kind of make Aiton do it. But you're right. He was awesome in game one. So, like, I get the fear if you're Jason Kidd to do that because their best lineup, I guess, uh, so far in the playoffs anyway, has been Maxi at center. And you just kind of switch everything and hope. And obviously, this is a difficult matchup compared to what it was against Utah. But I think you, I still probably would do that and just see if it works. Um I don't think it's going to, to be honest with you, but I think that they always have a uh, puncher's chance. Whereas if, if you're playing them traditionally, I think we saw in game one, it's going to be some tough sledding. Maybe maybe Phoenix has a, has a night where they, they just don't make shots, but it wasn't as if they were all unconscious in game one. I mean, Booker was out of 20, uh, you know, CP finally missed a couple shots after not missing a shot for a week or whatever it was. Um, but Bridges was like ordinary. They, they didn't have this great shooting game. They were, they were really good in the mid range as they always are seemingly, but um they didn't bomb away in, in game one either. So I don't know what the answer is, but I would at least uh, try more of that switch everything and just kind of hope that Aiton uh, doesn't have 50, I guess. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that makes sense. Cause like in theory, if the option is get torched by Chris Paul and Devin Booker or get torched by Deandre Aiton, you take your chances with Aiton. like that thinking is sound. I think it's just a, in practice, that might be yeah, but he might torture you. And that's that's the thing. I mean, there's there's no. I, I will acknowledge that now. Like the way Aiton was playing in Game One, you said it. Like I know why you wouldn't want to suddenly start switching more because he was already cooking uh, against Dwight Powell and Kleber. And then if you've got him posting up, you know, uh, let's just say Dinwiddie or whatever on a switch, like that's not going to go well, obviously. So no, not 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 a lot of great options defensively for for Dallas. I think that um, they'll play better on offense. I would imagine in this series than they did in game one. Uh, I do have that belief. If you're trying to root for competitive series, I, uh, which is kind of funny because Dallas has been better defensively than offensively for the entire season, basically. Yeah. But I do have more faith in their offense, their defense in the series, which is for whatever, whatever it's worth. I'm not sure what that means, but not, it's probably not great for Dallas, <laughs> but that's how I feel. Yeah. And I think they could be smarter offensively. You know, some of the shots we talked about with Luca, um, even like Dinwiddie and Brunson sometimes could exercise better judgment. That's, I mean, it's harder to do when you're playing the Suns, who are taking away some of the better options. Yeah. And they were but, awful too. I mean, Brun- Brunson was just terrible, like objectively. Like he was missing. Yeah. I think he was at one point like one of eight on twos. Like he just had he had nothing in game one. And uh, part of that's the defense for sure. But he has to be better. I think he will be better than that at least, which helps them because um, we saw in game in the, in the first series, of course, without Luca. But even with Luca back, they needed Brunson to be awesome in that series like it wasn't like they were playing a bunch of blowouts they, those were all close games and he was awesome in winning a couple of those close ones and if he doesn't have it then dallas's offense becomes luca and more luca and he's awesome but he can't do everything himself yeah and i think going off of that i mean for as good as luca is and as safe as it typically is to just run your offense through him i think this identity they found against the jazz with brunson and dinwiddie as slashers and going you know, guys who can break their guys down off the dribble they need to find a way to merge that with Luca Ball. And I thought, I think most of the time, those two things are sort of existing independent of one another. It's like, okay, this possession, we're going to play Luca Ball. Next possession, we'll try Brunson or Dinwiddie and we'll play that way, you know, and Luca's not involved. If they can merge those two things, I think they'll be a lot better off. And a lot of that's just like Luca needs to make quicker passes. He needs to make quicker decisions. He needs to take a catch and shoot three, you know, and, and like play more of that 
like almost like a role player, you know, within that Mavs identity of swinging the ball, you know, getting into the defense, drawing help and, and, you know, playing advantage basketball. They don't really do that when he's on the floor, when he's no. handling the ball, because he wants to generate the advantage himself and pretty much make one pass to whoever's wide open. And that's got that, that guy shoots the ball, but it like against the Suns, you, you just can't do that consistently enough. And I thought there were a few times last night where Luca had the opportunity to like catch quick swing to a shooter and he just held the ball, you know, and then the Suns can reset bridges can get into a stance. They can start to shade him the direction they want him to go. And like, it gives the defense a chance to, to get into place. Like the Mavs just can't afford to do that in this series. They, they need no. to be quicker. Luca in particular needs to be quicker with his decisions and with his passing and with his, his movement. Totally agree. Um, if you're playing against Phoenix's set defense, like you're just, uh, you're drawing dead for the most part. They're really good and really, uh, really, really coherent in the way they approach things. Uh, I'm guessing you change your pick now after one game, and we, we can move on to to Miami and Philly. But would you? I'm guessing you'd pick Phoenix now. I would. I'd go six games or seven, yeah. maybe. Yeah. If, I was gonna say if if you still pick Dallas, I would encourage you to bet on it because Dallas is now a, a very very large underdog. So yeah, Dallas and five. Uh, <laughs> you heard here, folks, folks. First, folks, Dallas and five. Okay, uh, quickly here at the end. Obviously, I think it's probably the least interesting series right now for me, anyway. Um, because of Embiid, which is a shame, obviously. But Miami is a giant favorite against Philly right now in the market. They uh, beat them up pretty good in game one on Monday. Um, there's the DeAndre Jordan stuff, which I will let you talk about if you'd like to. That was uh, interesting from Doc Rivers, as always. Um, but basically what it comes down to for me, and this is very broad, but Miami without Kyle Lowry is a lot better than Philly without Joel Embiid. Uh, Joel Embiid is the Sun, Moon, and Stars for Philly. And Kyle Lowry matters a lot for Miami, but not in the same way that Embiid does. So um, between that and James Harden's continued playoff weirdness where he was just – he was actually okay at times in game one, but just kind of passive in strange ways. And uh, they cannot afford that because, you know, Maxi is pretty good too. But um, if, with Embiid out, Harden's got to be awesome, and he was not awesome in game one. And uh, they were – honestly, I thought Miami let them stay, stay in the game more than they probably should have throughout the contest, but Miami was a lot better in game one and they didn't even play that well. Yeah. So I'll be honest. I did not see most of this game last night. Cause I was actually playing pickup basketball. How'd you play? Um, I not as well as I wanted to. It didn't help that the gym was like 90 degrees. It but, is very uh, warm in the city where we live now at the moment. Yeah, and and no air conditioning in the gym either for some no, reason. I, I had to ask. I'm just saying, like, look, look. I'll say this for you. Uh, if there was a game to miss, it was probably going to be that one. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm well, with you all the way. Why I was kind of comfortable with it is because like, okay, well, I'm not missing Grizz Warriors. Well, and there was so. there was a moment I will say I think Philly led for like three minutes total, and it was the last thirty seconds of the first half, and like the and like maybe part of the first uh, two minutes of the third quarter. Yeah, and Miami basically dominated the rest of the game, and it was very obvious why they did it like Miami's defense is obviously very good um but Philly between the lineup weirdness and Harden it's just like we we kind of know the deal here without Embiid this is what a fringe playoff team yeah that like it it looked like a 1-8 series to me in Mm -hmm. game in game one which I'm not trying to be mean to Philly but without Embiid that's what they are I mean they're, they're just not very good well and also if you kind of look at Miami and you you assess like their their personnel and their style, the way they want to play, particularly defensively, you, if you ask yourself, okay, what kind of player could maybe give this team some fits? Well, they don't have a lot of size it's on the interior, <laughs> right? Yeah, maybe like a guy who could post yeah. up and really punish your big men inside because they don't have a ton of 
a ton of size. Like the, the biggest guy in the rotation is like Dwayne Dedman at six ten, and he doesn't Hawks, really play Hawks that legend. much. Hawks legend Dwayne Dedman. Yeah, it's all a bunch of like smallish guys who want to switch and be really aggressive. And so, well, if you just if you had like a big post up guy, like a seven footer with some skill who could put the ball on the floor, <laughs> use his force on the interior, get to the free throw line. That might be the way that you could attack Miami. Philly has that guy. Obviously, he's just not playing. He's not so, available. Um, that that is like, in addition to Embiid, obviously being their best player, it's like he's the guy that actually stylistically could pose a concern for Miami that they can't really deal with. And I agree. You know, DeAndre Jordan, not that guy. I Ugh. didn't need to watch the game to know that there was a lot of DeAndre Jordan, at least too much DeAndre Jordan, because I was getting a lot of texts well, from my friend John this. about, about so, all the DeAndre Jordan. <laughs> shouts, to, shouts to John. Um, during halftime, there was this whole side conversation uh, on Twitter between like Nate Duncan and Herolibus and all these people that are, are obviously very plugged in about like, is Doc really going to start him again in the third quarter? And, and he did it. Uh, and listen, I will say, I think Nate, Nate said this as well. I don't think DeAndre was terrible in the second half. I really don't. I think he was not good. He was terrible in the first half, like truly terrible. And I could not believe he was out there and they kept playing him. And like, I just don't understand. But I mean, if you look at the number, like no one was good. I mean, Paul Reed couldn't stay on the floor. Right. I, I, we all love Paul Reed. He had 5,013 minutes. George Niang was 0-7 from the floor, 0-7 from three. Like, what? I don't know what you're supposed to do. Charles you Bassey. off Charles Bassey? I mean, he played five minutes. He was like, you know, out there. It was mostly garbage time, if I remember right. But yeah, I... I Obviously, they can win game two. It's one basketball game, but like they they are again a very large underdog in game two in my mind. And the series begins if Embiid plays in game three. If he doesn't, then they're probably just dead. And if he does, then they can you know the the, the blueprint basically becomes go win both at home and then reset things. Um, but they're not. I mean, this is not breaking news. They're not winning the series if Embiid's not back in game three. I don't think. Yeah. Um, so, and that's that's unfortunate. It's obviously just. We said it a couple of times, but it's brutal for Philly. I mean, last year they had the collapse that was self-inflicted. They were just, they were terrible at times, but this year, like Embiid not being there is just awful. Cause like, I'm not sure they're going to win a series anyway. I kind of like Miami in the matchup anyway, but Philly without Embiid, is just like the most uninspiring team. I mean, Max is a lot of fun, but other than that, like, what are you going to do? Yeah, it's not good. It's, do you think that when Embiid was ruled out, Doc Rivers was like, yes, finally, this is my chance I can finally get DeAndre Jordan in there, or like finally, finally, this is, this is my chance to not blow a lead in the series. I'll, I'll just, I'll just yeah. use it harmlessly because Embiid was hurt. And I could, and I could just say Embiid was hurt, and that'll be it. Yeah. No, I mean, I watched the whole thing. I was, I was covering it for Dime last night. It was just, it was kind of just not fun to watch. I mean, Miami's not necessarily the most fun aesthetic team to watch anyway. I enjoy Miami because of the defense they play, mm-hmm. but like Jimmy wasn't very good um, last night uh, in Game One. Um, Bam finally finally kind of woke up. He, I thought he was pretty pedestrian in the Hawks series offensively. He was good defensively. Obviously. Yeah. Um, but Hero, I mean, if, if Hero's got it going in the series, like good good night Philadelphia, because like you know Hero is hot and cold. But if he's going to make his shots and have seven assists, no turnovers, like okay. Uh, so yeah, I, I have no, I have nothing really else to add about this. That's why I want to save it for the end. Just kind of we'll end with this, and it's like hopefully it'd be a complete game three. That's all I got. Yeah. Well, and, and also I mean Harden just had like you said he has to be better because like Hero. That's a guy you can pick on. Duncan Robinson, when he's out there, that's a guy you can pick By on. The way, they're... NPCD. Duncan Robinson's making $18 million a year. Yeah. And NPCD. maybe that's why. Maybe that's why is they felt like he's too much of a weak Oh, that's got to be why. I mean, if you watch the Hawks series, he barely played that series. Like, yeah. he played in every game, but he was playing eight minutes sometimes or seven minutes sometimes. And it's like, I don't think it's wrong, but it is a wild, like, big picture team building thing to be like, whoa, they just pay this guy a huge contract. And yeah. 
in the span of a few months, he is not playing for them in playoffs. He's games. already worse than Max Struess. I mean, Max Struess is starting and like playing pretty well. He's but good. I like Max Struess. <laughs> basically, what what happened was uh, Robinson got Wally pipped by Oladipo because when Butler missed the Hawks game, game five, they they started Oladipo, and he hadn't mm-hmm. even been, he barely even been playing. But then now there's just no minutes. Like if you because if you give a full workload to Struess, Vincent. Um, hero Old Depot with a sprinkling of Cody Martin, like that's that's it. That's all you got. Plus Jimmy. So, yeah, Duncan Robinson. I mean, it's my guy from from Michigan, but it's uh, tough sledding over there. Yeah, it's not looking good. Tough contract. Um, okay, well, we've covered all four series. Uh, I will ask you one one big picture question here at the end of this po- uh, part one before we get to the small stuff later on. Um, all four series are one zero right now. Uh, who has the best chance of winning the series? That is not winning the series I, th- I think it's probably going to be boston but i would just uh i'll just leave it out there for you just to ask the question i think it's probably boston too i the grizz and mavericks seem like a, a tied for second you know like i could see either of those things happening but i think it's i mean i just think both those teams are outmatched in some significant ways and the market agrees with you by the way because like betting betting wise there are three huge favorites and then there is milwaukee boston's i guess maybe the grizz would be third since they lost game one on their own floor and that just kind of makes it more uphill sledding true so yeah boston i think they also lost game one on their home floor but they're they strike me as just a more resilient and more well and they're better they're just better versatile yeah i mean they just fewer weak points uh fewer areas to exploit better Probably better top end talent, really. I mean, Middleton they, being out still matters. Like I know they won that yeah. game, but Milwaukee without Middleton is not quite Milwaukee in capital letters too. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm with you. I think it's pretty clear with them. But I want to at least ask you if, you, if, if I was giving you one more chance to go back to Dallas, go back to the van, go back to the to the bay. Thousand five, yeah. At the end of the podcast. Okay, Ben. Uh, well, for anybody that misses this uh, second podcast, I want to stop here and uh, ask you to plug whatever you got going on. I know you're writing all kinds of stuff always and podcasting with our friend we ref- that we referenced earlier, John. But uh, please plug yourself, sir, and then we'll be back for part two later on. Sure. Yeah, I'm writing about the NBA, obviously covering the playoffs uh, over at the Step Back. So you can check that out. Um, also covering the league in podcast form on the Read and React NBA podcast with the aforementioned uh, John Sauber. Legend. So I don't I don't know when the next episode of that's going to come out. That tends to be more of a, a when you sporadic can. scheduling. Yeah, yeah. but. Um, yeah, whatever, so, whatever, whatever John has a take that he has to get off his chest. Right, basically what it exactly. comes down to. Yeah, it may be a while if the Sixers keep losing the way they did last night. Yeah, I try not to take a, too, too many shots at the Sixers on this podcast in case in case John listens, but uh, hopefully <laughs> hopefully it won't be too brutal for him the rest of the week. But yeah, um, that's, a so fun, you can that's a fun show. Keep up with all that. Uh, you can find that on my Twitter page. Usually that's where I tweet it all out. And uh, other than if not, you can just search it and it'll it'll probably come up. So yeah, that's about it. Follow Ben on all platforms. Read Ben. Listen to Ben. Ben is very smart. Thank you, sir. And uh, for everybody else, please subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back again later in the week with more on, uh, I guess, more on the actual Atlanta Hawks with Ben and myself. So stay tuned for all of that.